And this praise team, they did a great job today too. Before we get into our message today, I just wanted to uh, make a couple of uh, quick announcements. I know we already did announcements, announcements, but as most of you know, uh, our friend and, and brother in Christ, uh, John Rosenberger, passed away this week. And so Tuesday they'll be having the funeral. So if you remember on Tuesday morning to say a little word for the family, they're going through that grieving process right now. And, uh, and if you'd like to bless the family in lieu of flowers or anything like that, if you would like to make a gift or something to the family, you can drop that off here at the church and we'll make sure that gets delivered to them. And then uh, second of all, a uh, pastor asked me to update you all. Last week he took up an offering for our furnace that failed on us. And uh, it was one of those emergency things where we had to get it taken care of quickly. And so um, we, you all began bringing gifts for that and uh, we've reached the halfway mark. So if you came last week and you weren't prepared to give towards that furnace and, uh, and, you, and you didn't have your checkbook or whatever, that you can still give towards that project, just mark it for the furnace and we'll get that taken care of. We know that you're going to be faithful and take care of it because God's blessed you with resources and he's blessed our church with resources. But he just wanted me to update you that we hit that halfway mark. Okay, um, if you don't mind, let's just pray real quick that the Lord, as he speaks this morning, that, that he'll say something to our spirits. And we want to hear what he has to say. You guys don't want to hear me. I have nothing to add to your life, but Jesus has truth for you today. Father God, as we enter into this time of the message, Lord, we pray that you would just help us to clear our minds and to hear your voice. Lord, more than anything I could say, Lord, we want to hear your truth. Lord, that's why we're here, because we want to interact with you. We want to have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, as we study the scripture this morning and as we uh, discuss the goodness of the gospel message. Lord, I pray that it would have an effect on our hearts, Lord, that you would ignite that flame of love within us so that we pursue you more and we can live for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good morning. It's a little thin in here. There's a lot of sickness going around today, and it got pastor too. He came into the office Thursday morning. He was looking pretty rough. I told him as much. And he said, you're right, I'm going home. So he went home, and the next day sent me a picture of the COVID test. He got the positive uh, COVID test. So he's doing all right. He's on the mend, but he said, uh, you're going to have to preach for me today. So that's what I'm here to do. I pulled out of my, I have a little book where I write down my, all my sermon ideas, and I got one out. I did some studying, and we're going to talk about this today. And uh, our message today is uh, called Flirting with Faith. And... Uh, and we're just going to talk a little bit about that. Sometimes we get on the edge, and we, we just need a little push over the, the far line. Now, many of us have dated at one time or another in our life, and pickup lines are a tradition. You know, it's, it's an expected thing that's going to happen in, uh, in a dating relationship. Everyone knows they're cheesy, but you get a chance to show off how witty or clever you are, and perhaps just maybe your crush will reward you if you come up with a really good one and give you that little smile or that nod that lets you know that they, they approve. Um, but pickup lines can be a little more difficult for Christians because you got to make sure you toe that line and you don't cross the line into something inappropriate. So uh, I just want to throw out a few Christian pickup lines here and see what you think about this for flirting. And, and you can give me a thumbs up, thumb down, whatever. These aren't mine, just some good ones that I, I saw. Uh, the first one would be, are you the burning bush? Because you're on fire, and now I'm feeling curious. Another one says, uh, I was reading the book of Numbers, but I didn't see yours in there. 
Um, another one says, are you related to Abraham? Because I like you a lot. And then the last one here I've got is, is your name faith? Because you're the substance of things I've hoped for. Yeah, yeah, some pretty cheesy ones there, right? And listen, it's important. If you're not handsome, athletic, cool, or rich, you better be funny. You've got to have something going for you. So remember, fellas, if you feel like you don't have a chance, if she's grinning, you're winning. All right, but there's something about flirting that's fun. It's fun to be chased, and it's fun to do the chasing, you know, and when you're caught up in that, um, it's enjoyable for both parties. Now, it's not so much fun when you get shot down and you go down in flames, but there is something alluring about that. You get caught up in the emotions, you get caught up in the hormones, and you're like, oh, man, she's so cute. You think, did she see me? Did I look cool? Did she notice me? And for girls, you're thinking, oh, he's so cute. Is he picking up on all my hints? And the answer to that is no, we're not. We never do. We're, we're not as smart as we look. But the fun, flirty stage eventually has to pass on to something more substantial if you're going to have any kind of relationship. You can't stay in that fun, uh, you know, in, in the, the emotional rush. And so um, the flirty stage, it turns more ser serious. And as you go into a relationship, eventually the strength of that relationship is going to be tested. And why do you say that? Well, because there's going to be many things that pop up in life that will make you say, I'm done with this person, or I'm not going there anymore. I, this isn't worth it anymore. You know, any relationship, it's not all gumdrops and roses and chocolate and candy and, and, and all the good things. It's not the Valentine's Day buzz, right, where people make all their posts on Facebook about how I love my, my sweetie, right? That's not how it all stays. Um, you have to have something more substantial to hold on to when you hit those tough times. And it's the same when it comes to our faith and discipleship. See, sometimes we think about faith or discipleship as a, a set of ideas that we accept. Okay, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When he says it, I believe what it says. And so that is a, it's a, it's a, per, it's a concept that I accept. I'm going to believe like it's true. But faith and discipleship is more than just a set of ideas. It's a relationship that we enter into with our Creator. And today, we're going to look at it in those terms. And my bottom line for you is this. When it comes to your faith, don't flirt with your faith. you got to move on to something else. Now, the passage that we're going to look at this, we've got several today, um, and I'm trying to stay still. I was told to, to not wander too much behind the pulpit. Uh, but, but the book that we're going to look at today is Hebrews. And... Um, uh, we're just going to talk a little bit. There's several passages in there that we're going to look at. Um, the book of Hebrews, uh, traditionally, some people have said that it was written by Paul. But if you read the context clues in the book, it probably wasn't written by Paul. And there's been many different ideas as to who it might have been that wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, there's no way to know for sure. Uh, it, it's an anonymous book. We don't know. But the truth that's held within it is, is still accurate. And as far as the date of when Hebrews was written, and this is important, if you're studying Scripture, you need to understand who wrote it, who did they write it to, and why did they write it. And so this was written probably in the 60s or 70s, just a few years after the death of Christ. And we're getting to that time of, uh, where you know Peter had been martyred, maybe Paul had been martyred, and things were heating up in the Middle East. And we can relate to that a little bit today. Uh, but there was a couple major conflicts that were going on. Number one, the Jewish synagogues were telling the Christians, listen, you guys say that you're good Jews and you keep coming to our synagogue and you keep reading our scriptures, but you're not following 
the God of the Old Testament, you're following Jesus. You're following this Christ guy, and he's not real. And so we're, we don't want anything more to do with you. And they started to kick them out of the synagogues. And so that was very painful because they said, you know, for, for those Jewish Christians, they said, well, this is who I am. I'm a Jew. This is, this is my identity. How can you kick me out of my synagogue? And so that was a very contentious time. And, and it wasn't for all Christians because, you know, a lot of Christians were Gentiles at that time, but some were Jews. And to be excluded was very painful for them. And Hebrews was probably written during that time. The second conflict that was going on is that the Jews themselves were getting into fights with Rome. And in fact, there was a big revolt that happened around that time. And it eventually, it ended up with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and uh, the, the end of the Jewish state. In fact, that's where our term Palestine comes from. The Romans, uh, when they came in and they said, this is no longer Israel. We're shutting it down. This isn't Judea. We are now going to call it Palestine because we know that your biggest enemies were the Philistines. And so we're just going to rename your homeland after your biggest enemies. So that's where that term comes from. Um, so the, the, the author of Hebrews, he's writing in this time where the Jews are fighting with the Christians. The Romans are fighting with the Jews. It's a very contentious time. It was rough. And so he was writing to encourage the believers so he's not writing to unsaved people. He's writing to believers, and he's saying, let me share some things with you about Jesus. There's several important themes that come out in the book of Hebrews. Um, first of all, it talks about Jesus as God's supreme revelation. He makes a, a very big point of going through and, and listing all of the ways that Jesus is the, the best, most clear representation or way for us to know anything about God. Um, it says that he was superior to the angels. You know, the tradition in the Old Testament, you see many times God would send a messenger. God would send an angel to deliver a word to somebody. And, and uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, Jesus is even better than that. It's a, it's a more direct connection. And uh, there was a tradition that they, the angels were the ones that were daily communicating with Moses and talking to him and giving him the law. And so uh, the, the author of Hebrews, he, he just says that, that Jesus is superior to even that. The second thing, he says, he was superior to Moses. Within the Jewish tradition, there was no greater prophet than Moses. Why? Because he gave us the law. He gave us the Ten Commandments. He, he helped us to know what we need to do to be the people of God. And so people revered Moses. They looked for a new Moses. And so the, the writer of Hebrews says that uh, Jesus is even more superior to that. He talks about how Jesus is superior to the high priests in the temple and the sacrifices that went on there. He said, listen, all of that is done away with now because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And, and I was thinking today as we were singing that song about, oh, the blood. Isn't it crazy that we as Christians, we, we venerate what is ultimately a, a, an instrument of torture? And we talk about blood and, and we, we talk about how precious that is to us and how it's cleansed us. It does sound a little crazy from the world's perspective. But when we understand what that blood symbolizes, it's the, it's the sacrifice that Jesus took on for us. And so the author of Hebrews, he goes through uh, the book just talking about how Jesus is superior to all these different things. He is the, the central part of the gospel message. And then he moves into some other ideas about how do we live if these things are true about Jesus. And he talks about how we need to live with patience. We need to live with faith. We need to live with endurance. We should be a people of, of hope. We should be a people of love. And we should be respectful to those around us. And so he talks about, you know, if all of these things that I've said about Jesus are true, then this has implications for how we live our lives. And so those are the things that he was talking about there. But 
Sprinkled throughout the book of Hebrews, there are several warnings that he gives us. And, and sometimes it's marked out in the Greek. If you're reading it in the original language, it'll say, hey, listen, watch out for this. Be careful. Look out for this particular thing. He's trying to give us some guardrails that help, will help us as we think about what it means to be a, fa a faithful believer and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And so he tells you, and it says right there in the Greek, watch out, pay attention, listen to this. And so we're going to look at those five warnings. And, and again, this isn't meant to be judgmental, but this is just the truth. You know, if, if we accept what we teach about Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he came to reveal the father to us, that he came to take on our sin and to be uh, sacrificed for us, and that now our sins are forgiven because of that sacrifice. If all of those things are true, it has implications for our lives, and we need to be careful about how we live it out then. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, today I'm using the New Living Translation. For those of you with the fancy digital Bibles, and you can switch it over. Uh, I like the New Living Translation. It is what they call a functional uh, translation because it, it, it looks at the ideas and it tries to put it in the clearest English language that it can so that we can understand it. Because God doesn't want us to read the Bible and be confused. How many of you know that? He, he gave us a revelation because he was trying to make it more clear. He was trying to help us to see past all of our misconceptions. So it's good to find a translation that will do that. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2 and we're looking at verses 1 through 4. And uh, I'm sorry, 2 through 4. And, uh, and here we go, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, it says this. So we must listen very carefully to the truth that we've heard. Notice there, listen very carefully, or we may drift from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood for, firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first, uh, uh, first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who, speak, uh, who heard him speak. And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. So this is the first warning, and it comes in that first verse there. Do not drift away. You know, um, the, the Greek language there, it's in reference to boats. You know? So you know, if you get in a boat and you don't drop the anchor, what's going to happen to that boat? It's not going to be at the end of your dock when you're done. You've got to tie it off. You've got to have an anchor that, that holds it in place. You've got to have something that keeps you where you need to be. And if you don't, you're just going to go wherever the wind blows. And it comes the same with our faith. You know, if we think that, you know, I could just do whatever I want, uh, I don't have to do things God's way, then we begin to drift away. In Acts chapter 16, uh, there's a, a passage that talks about how Paul and Silas were put in prison. And if any of you remember this story, there came an earthquake that, that opened the prison doors. It broke the shackles that were holding Paul and Silas in place. And when the jailer came and he saw that the, the, the prison had been broken open, he assumed all of the prisoners that are escape, have escaped and he started to kill himself. He said, I'm just going to, they're not going to have to punish me. I know what's coming. I'm just going to do it myself. And Paul and Silas stopped him and they said, listen, listen, this isn't about you. This isn't, uh, this isn't uh, you know, something that's a, a tragedy. We're all right here. And the, the jailer said, well, then what happened? And so they explained to them, listen, we were delivered by the Lord. And the, the jailer came to faith and he said, what do I have to do to be saved? And so Paul and Silas, they broke it down. They said, listen, we're preaching about Jesus. That's all you got to do. You got to believe in him. You got to follow him, be his disciple, you know, ask for forgiveness of your sins and you can be saved. And so, 
you know, that, that's a question that we ask sometimes when we come to Christ. But there's a flip side of that question because it's, well, it, it, what do I have to be saved? What do I have to do to be saved? Well, what do I have to do if I start to drift away? What do we have to do to drift? Well, the answer to that is just nothing. You know, it, it, it's the natural nature or it's the, it's the natural order of things that uh, when we don't um, stay connected, when we don't stay plugged in, when we don't uh, follow the word, when we don't connect regularly, we're going to drift away from someone. Nearly all of us have had a relationship that uh, through the course of our life, we're not as close as we used to be. Maybe it's a childhood friend. Maybe it's someone who, you know, you, you were dating or whatever, but, you know, things didn't work out, and so you've drifted away, and now you don't know anything about them. You know, uh, we have friends and family members. You know, sometimes I regret that I, I'm not as close to my cousins as I was when I was younger, but we had those touch points. Every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, we got to get, come together and see each other and, and see who would walk away with the bloody nose as we wrestled in Grandma and Grandpa's backyard, and we were very close. We were buddies, you know. We loved it. And, and many of them, I, the only uh, interaction I have with them now is whatever they post on Instagram or Facebook. And I, I sometimes I, I, I grieve the loss of that relationship. But what happened? Now that Grandma and Grandpa have passed away, we don't come together every Thanksgiving. We don't see each other every Christmas. And we've begun to drift away. And it's the same way with our faith. Relationships require effort. And you say, okay, well, I don't understand how I'm supposed to uh, foster this relationship with God. I can't call him on the phone. I don't have his phone number. You know, I can't send him an email or a text. You know, I can't invite him over to my house. But there are ways we can connect to the Father. You know, uh, we did it today during our worship service. I don't know about you all, but I felt the Holy Spirit in this place. You know, he spoke to us through prophetic words. He's trying to draw us closer to him. But we have to plug in. We have to read our word. We have to pray. We have to put ourselves in places where we can interact with God. And so that's the first warning that the writer of Hebrews gives us. Do not drift away. And if you are in this house today and you feel like, you know, I do feel like I've started to drift a little bit. Well, here's the thing. Whenever we notice that we start to drift, we can come right back over. Now, I've always driven older cars. I've never had one of the fancy new ones with all the, the bells and the whistles. But occasionally I get a rental car. You know, you go to the airport, you need to get around and so I always make sure and get a pretty fancy one then right you know might as well let me get the one with the air-conditioned seats and and the the Bluetooth surround sound and all that kind of stuff but these new ones they have these things called what drift control right you start to go go across the line and if you didn't put on your blinker it thinks oh you're veering off the road and it'll bring you right back in line and what we have built a guardrail into the into the car to keep us safe well, we have to do the same things in our lives. Unfortunately, we can't just turn it over to a computer system and say, hey, let me know when I'm not following God the way I'm supposed to anymore. We have to make that assessment for ourselves. And so here's the thing. If we feel ourselves beginning to drift away, what do we need to do? Lean in. Get yourself back on the right track. And that's what the author of Hebrews was trying to say to us today. Don't drift away. All right, now let's flip to the next warning in here. This is in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. So I'll give you a second to flip over there. But here's the next warning that the author of Hebrews gives us. He says this, Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. Now I'm going to stop there for just a second and Remember how I said he wasn't writing to unbelievers? He was writing to the church? So how could he say that their hearts would be evil and unbelieving? 
Well, let's look a little more at it. Verse 13 says this, You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says, Today when you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. So that's our second warning. Don't be hardened by sin. And unbelief can happen in the life of a believer. Unbelief is not the inability to understand. It's not that you just don't get it. It's not that, well, I read this Bible, God, and I don't know what you're trying to say to me. That's not unbelief. That's ignorance. Unbelief is when you say, I know what you're telling me to do, God, but I'm not going to do it. It's an unwillingness to trust God and to live according to his principles. See, when God tells us, do this, this, and that, he's not doing it just because he wants to boss us around. He's doing it because he's saying, listen, if you will live your life according to these principles, then things will go well for you. And when we say, okay, God, I'm going to obey you, I'm going to do what you asked me to do, we're trusting him that what he told us about that is true. That if we follow him, our lives will be better than if we don't. Now, does that mean that there won't be pain or suffering or trial or tribulation? No, it doesn't mean that. But it does mean that if we will live according to God's principles, we save ourselves from a lot of additional pain that's unnecessary, and we position ourselves where God can bless us and reward us for our obedience. So um, we have to be careful that we are not unwilling to trust the God. See, uh, trust what God says. It is the will, not the intelligence, that is involved in unbelief. It is saying, God, I know what you want me to do. I just don't want to do it. And I'm going to do what I want instead of what you want. And so that's why it says that their hearts become hardened. See, when, when somebody asks you to do something for them and you say, nope. And then they ask you again and you say, nope. And they say, can you do this for me? Nope, I'm not doing that. I don't have time. I don't want to. Then eventually they stop asking. And that harms that relationship there. Uh, this week I was watching uh, a video and there was this... There was this young lady, she looked like she was probably in her early 30s, and she was reflecting on her time at home, and she said, if someone came to me today and said that I'm going to pay your rent, your utilities, and buy all your groceries for the next 18 years of your life, I would, sign, I would say, sign me up right now, right? <laughs> Especially with groceries that are as expensive as they are right now. We'd all sign up. And yet, when we were children and we were living in the homes of our parents, and they asked us to do little things like unload the dishwasher or take out the garbage or clean up your own room, not even asking you to clean the house, just take care of your own stuff. What did we do? We griped and we grumbled and we complained. And, and then her reflection on that was, I need to call my mom and dad and apologize <laughs> because they were good to me. And it's the same way. God is trying to, to help us along. And what do we do? We rebel against it. We gripe and we grumble and we complain. We say, God, why are you making me do all this? Why are you making me forgive people that are just being jerks to me? God, why are you making me hold my tongue and be patient in situations where I want to lash out in anger or frustration? God, why are you asking me to, to uh, give of my money when I'm already stretched thin? God, why are you asking me to give some of my precious time when I'm tired and all I want to do is go home and sit on my couch and turn on Sports Center? And we say, God, why are you asking me to do all these things? 
It's because he, we, we're grateful for all the things that he's done for us. Unbelief also doesn't mean that it's a weakness of faith. Sometimes we get this idea and we hear in Christian circles, well, you just need to, 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 to believe more, believe harder, you know, faith more. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a weird thing to think, but it's like, you know, if you just believe harder, things will work out for you. But it's not about weakness of faith. It's opposition to faith. It's saying, God, I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to surrender. I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. I have my own way of doing things, and I think that's better. So that's what I'm going to do. And so the author of Hebrews is warning them, don't be hardened by your sinful attitude towards disobedience, unbelief. It, it actually says it's an evilness in the heart. And that has no place in the life of a believer. And what does it tell us to do as a body of Christ? It says, warn each other. It says, warn each other. While it's still today, don't wait till tomorrow. If you see somebody doing something, if you see them on the path to destruction, if you see them doing something that's going to get them hurt, what do we do? We step in. You know, uh, one of the things that, that um, you know, if you're a parent, you know that you can't watch over your child all the time. You're not with them 24-7. And so you have to learn how to trust some people. When they're real little, you might have to trust their daycare uh, teacher to, to take care of them, to, to, to take care of their needs, to teach them, to protect them, to keep them safe. As they get older, you trust their teachers at school to teach them the things that they need to know to be able to navigate in this life. As we send them to, to youth group, we're, we're trusting the youth pastor and the, and, the, and the youth volunteers to be able to invest and create relationship and, and help them to grow deeper in their faith. We learn to trust other people. That's what we do for each other as a body. So our job is to warn each other, to, to keep us in, in step when we see someone stepping outside of the, the bounds of what's acceptable, to encourage each other, not to criticize, not to judge. That's not our job. We will get to judge someday. It says that someday when we enter into heaven, when we enter into in, in eternity, we're going to judge and rule and reign along with God. But until then, our job is not to judge. Our job is not to criticize. Our job is to nudge, to encourage, to warn, to keep each other on the right path. I don't know about you, but there are times when I get off track. There are times when I allow my bad attitude or I'm just feeling grumpy or I'm tired and I'm not at my best and sometimes I need somebody to say hey John you're out of line that was over the that that, that was rude you need to apologize to that person or or maybe I'm not doing the things I need to do as far as my devotions I have a brother in Christ who he'll call me every now and then and he'll say uh, did you read your Bible this morning because he knows I like to read it in the morning and, and you could read your Bible whatever time of the day works best for you. Some people read over their lunch break. Some people read after work. Some people read before bed. Whatever works for you. But he knows that I start my day off with a cup of coffee and the Word of God. And he'll call me and he'll say, did you read your Bible this morning? And every now and then he catches me. And it's like, oh, well, no, I didn't because I woke up late. And I didn't get my normal routine in. I was doing good to brush my teeth. I didn't even fix my hair today. I threw a hat on, you know. Sometimes we have those days. But I have a brother who he checks in on me every now and then. And, he, and, and he'll do that with more than just, did you read your Bible? He'll say, did you get enough sleep last night? Did you exercise? And you know what? I love that brother in Christ. He keeps me accountable. He helps me stay on the right track. So here's one other thing I wanted to point out about this passage. It says... So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. The point here is it's not the circumstances and it's not other people and it's not things that are done to us that hardens our heart. What hardens our heart 
is we do it ourselves to, to defend ourselves. We harden our own heart as a response to the pain and the hurt that we feel in life. And here's the thing. Any type of relationship you, you have to understand is a vulnerable thing. We love somebody, and that means that they can hurt you. Ever notice the deepest hurts that we have are from the people we loved and trusted the most? Because we, we're vulnerable to them. We, we let our armor down. We let our guard down because it's like, okay, I can trust this individual. And those are the, one, those are the hurts and the pains that hurt most. If a stranger says something bad to you, you don't think anything of it. I mean, especially in, on, the, on the Internet today, all it takes is you put anything out there. Somebody's going to mock it, ridicule it, uh, say you're dumb, say you don't understand anything. They're going to they're gonna call you names. They're going to belittle your faith. But they're going to tell you, you you're, they're going to body shame you, fat shame you, and every other way of shaming you that they can think of. And, you know, when it's an anonymous person, we, can, we try to just brush it off, just let it roll off. They don't know what they're talking about. Who's this person? It's probably some 13-year-old trying to get under my skin, you know, uh, in his mama's basement, you know, we, we tell us ourselves these things. But if, if your mama comes to you and says, hey, I noticed you're putting on a little weight there, you know. Or if, you, if, uh, if your friend comes to you and says, hey, uh, it's time to hit the gym, right? Those are the things that hurt more. Why? Because we trust those individuals. We're vulnerable to them. And we have to be careful not to allow ourselves to be hardened when we feel pain. Here's the thing. God wants to work with us through our pain. He wants to redeem that pain. And so don't harden yourself to what the Lord's asking you to do. And sometimes it's going to be the Lord himself that harms you. He's going to hurt you. And you say, wait a minute, how are you saying that God harms me? But think about it. What does a doctor do? You go to a doctor with a broken arm, what's he going to do? He's going to set that arm. And it's going to hurt like the Dickens, right? You're going to feel a little pressure, right? But why is he doing it? He's doing it for your own good. He's trying to get you back to where you need to be. So that's the second warning. Do not be hardened by sin. All right, we're going to flip over to chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6. It says this, For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing Him to the cross once again and holding Him up to public shame. So this next warning is this. Don't turn or fall away. I put turn or fall because in the Greek that word could mean either one. And I like to be accurate to what the Scripture says. Um, but, but here's the thing. You know, you, you say, well, does that mean that if you ever got saved and then you went and you backslid or you were not weren't living the way you were supposed to does that mean there's no way back to God that's not what we're talking about but we do need to be careful Jesus himself said this in in Matthew chapter 7 he said not everyone who calls out to me and says Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven only those who actually do the will of the father in heaven will enter it on Judgment Day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed miracles, mighty works of power in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. A couple points there. Number one, these people in this passage that Jesus is talking about, they were religious. They were doing religious things. What does it say? It says, we proclaimed your name. We cast out demons. We perform miracles. They were religious people doing religious things, but they weren't redeemed. 
they didn't have that relationship. Notice Jesus' response in verse 23. He says, I never knew you. How do we know somebody? We enter into a relationship with somebody. Um, last Wednesday, pastor was preaching, and he, he mentioned how you, know, you can use various personality profiles and, and, and you can get to know somebody a little better. It gives you a peek into their motivations or how they process things. And he mentioned that, that uh, I used to put in my phone and I would have different colors associated with different people. So that if someone contacted me, I would know how do I need to interact with this person? How, is this someone who needs facts? Uh, or is this someone who you need to talk to and then give them a chance to, to chew on this for a little while? Is this someone I need to try to persuade or do I need to let them it, let, let it be their own idea kind of thing? And, and so, you know, I had a few people contacted me afterward and said, what color am I in your phone? Right. I told uh, I said uh, Friday night, I said, you're all black in there now, you bunch of reprobates. Uh, but the, but the point is, is we get to know people and it helps us to know how to interact with them. I know, for instance, my son, if, if there's something negative going on, he doesn't want to talk about it. His personality is, um, uh, let's pretend that doesn't exist and let's go do this fun thing over here, right? Anybody know somebody like that? I would rather just not deal with it, right? Anybody know somebody who takes all their emotions and they bottle it up and they bottle it up and they bottle it up and then, boom, they explode like a, a two-liter, right? We, we get to know people and how they react to things because we're in a relationship with them. That's what Jesus is saying there. You need to be in a relationship with me. If you want to be mine, you need to be in a relationship. Now, some people take these passages where it says that if you've been saved, if you've tasted of the goodness of God and then you turn your back on it, they, they put it in an absolutist framework. And some of you might have heard this debate. There's, there's a debate that goes on in Christian circles about once saved, always saved. You know, if, if when I was eight years old, I repented and I said, Jesus, I love you, forgive me of my sins, that's all I need. I'm good from there on out. And so, you know, and, and that's an overly simplified view of the once saved, always saved position. But I don't think that that's what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that we can choose to walk away from God. We can choose to disobey, even if at one point in our life we said, God, I'm going to follow you. So that's why... Uh, that one doesn't work. And then other people put it in another um, uh, absolutist framework, and they talk about the unforgivable sin. You know, they'll, they'll reference that, that, that uh, saying from Jesus or that teaching from Jesus about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And it's like, okay, God can forgive you for everything else. He can forgive you from, for stealing, for cheating, for lying, and, and, and for adultery, and for all the other different things. He can uh, forgive you for all of that, but He can't forgive you for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So if you ever blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and people never want to define what that is to blaspheme, right? But they say, if you've done that, then you're beyond grace. Nothing can save you. And I want to talk about that a little bit because I do occasionally, as a pastor, get questions about these things. You know, what does it mean to say, am, am, am I saved? And am, can anybody make me lose my salvation? Or can I go so far that God won't forgive me? And I will just say this, what Jesus and what these passages are talking about is it's talking about rejecting the Holy Spirit. And when we reject the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that, that convicts us. It's the Holy Spirit that draws us into relationship with God. And so if every time the Holy Spirit talks to us, we silence the phone call and we say, I don't have time for you right now. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Um, then it becomes impossible for us to repent because repentance is when he convicts us and then we say oh god you're right i was wrong i need to go back I, I need to make amends for this i need to apologize 
And have any of you ever called a friend and they never pick up their phone? Right. That, that's become more popular recently. It's like, why are you calling me? Just text, please. You know, I don't want to talk to anyone on the phone. But if you call someone on the phone and you call them on the phone and you call them on the phone and you leave voicemails and you leave text messages and they quit responding to you, what's going to happen? Eventually, you're going to stop calling. And that's what this is talking about. If we continually say to the Holy Spirit, nope, not right now. I don't have time for this. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to deal with this. If we continually do that, then that puts us at a place where it's no longer possible to repent. We harden ourselves to that. If it, there's a saying, if a person shows you who, you who they are, believe them. And that's what God's doing. God has invited and invited and invited and invited, and you've said, nope, I don't want it. I don't want any part of it. Well, eventually he says, it hurts my heart. I don't want you to be in, in this place, but I can't make you do it. Well, he could, but he chooses not to because he doesn't want to violate us. He wants us to have a free will. You know, if someone had to love you, is it really love? I've been watching a sci-fi series recently, and, and there's, a, a, there's an AI robot character in it, and, and she loves another character. But she doesn't know. She says, do I love him because I love him, or do I love him because I was programmed to love him? And it's an interesting thing to think about. And that's kind of how it would be with God. If God made it so that we had to love him, would that really be love? Or would it just be us executing the, the, the programming in our brain? So he gives us a free will. All right. Um, I want to say one more thing to encourage people, because like I said, as a pastor, I get this question, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Um, ha, can, can I fall away? Is it possible? And I will say this, if you feel anxious about that, if you feel worried about that, that is a very clear sign that it doesn't apply to you. Because if you were truly hardened to, to the Holy Spirit where it couldn't draw you anymore, you wouldn't be worried about it. You would just say, who cares? right? So if you're feeling anxious about that, that is a very clear sign to you that you don't have to worry about it. You have not accidentally blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and you're not now condemned to hell for all eternity. So I just want to encourage you there. All right, so that's the third warning. Don't turn or fall away. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, and thank you for hanging with me on this one. I know this is long, but I really wanted to be um, comprehensive on this subject. You know, Hebrews is a fantastic book. If you've never read it, I encourage you, please do. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31 says this. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume His enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of just two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge and I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord will judge His own people. And then he ends with this terrible verse. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound like the God I want to know. I like the loving hippie Jesus that just says, you know, I'm, I, I love you and I forgive you and come over here, let me hug you and we're going to have lunch, right? That, that's the kind of God that we want, but we have to understand that that's not how it is. 
All right, and, and we're going to get more into this, but the, the fourth warning is this. It's either Jesus or it's nothing. And this comes from that verse right there where it says, um, if, if, we ha- if we continue sinning, deliberately continue sinning, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. What's the author saying there? He's saying that Jesus is the only one who can cover your sins. And if you say, um, I, I know that I'm a sinner, I know that I need help, I know that I need forgiveness, but I'm not sure about the whole Jesus thing. I'm going to go a different way. There's no salvation anywhere else. Jesus is the only one. If we reject Christ and His sacrifice for us, there's nothing else that can save us. How do we know that? John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said what? I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I'll tell you, the world doesn't like it when we quote that verse. They say, how do you know? How can you say that you're right and that Buddha wasn't right? How can you say that you're right and that Muhammad wasn't right? And, and we just, all we can do is we can say, listen, this isn't what I'm saying. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus says he's the only one. Now, I believe that there is truth in other religions. There's a, a, a glimmer of truth in them because there's something written in our hearts. It's a natural revelation that comes to all of mankind, but there's no salvation in those other re- religions. And so I know of people who have read um, the, the Koran and the Quran does not teach that Jesus died for our sins, but they read the Quran, and because of reading that, it, it got them to a point where they said, you know what, this is not the full picture of Jesus. I know what the full picture of Jesus is. And they start to do more research, and they read into it, and they come to a saving faith. And it started because they read the Quran. They saw a glimpse of the truth, but they didn't get the whole picture. So they said, well, I'm going to go get the whole picture. And once they have the whole picture, they realize it's true. Jesus was the Son of God. He did die for my sins. So, um, this, uh, some in, in this time where Hebrew, the, the author of Hebrews was writing, some of them were being tempted to go back to Judaism. Remember how I said they were being kicked out of their synagogues? And they were saying, listen, you've got you to gotta either be a Jew or you've got to be a Christian. There ain't no halfway anymore. And some of them were tempted to say, well, I think I'm going to go back to the synagogue for a little while. That's where my mama goes. My mama's a Jew, and I want to make sure that I'm in church with her. Or they say, I want to go back because you understand that Judaism is not just a religion, it's a cultural thing too. You know, there, even today in America, there are people who say, I am, I am ethnically Jewish, but I am not religiously Jewish, right? It is not only a religion, it's also an identity. And so there were some people who were tempted to go back. And then beyond that, in the wider Roman world, there were other pagan religions that said, listen, you don't have to follow that Jesus guy, you can get saved over here. There's this other guy you can follow. And so there were other religions that were tempting people. And so the author of Hebrews was saying, listen, don't go those other ways because you already know the truth. Jesus is the only way. And if you now forsake your faith in Jesus and you go back over there, there's nothing over there that can save you. That's what he was talking about there. It's Jesus or it's nothing. I wanted to point out something else. Verse 31 was interesting when I was reading this and I was studying this, but uh, uh, Jared, if you can throw 31 back up there, it was the last one. It says this, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And like I said, that doesn't sound like a very loving, caring, forgiving father. Why would the author of Hebrews say that? Well, it's because there is an element of God that is to be feared because not only is he our father, not only is our creator, he's also our judge. 
He's also going to hold us accountable. And so if we're in a place where we're not living correctly and we're not following his precepts and his principles, then we are opening ourselves up to judgment. During the uh, Second Great Awakening here in America, Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous, pa- uh, a famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he depicted Christians, he said, listen, if you are a sinner and you are not saved and you are not following, you're like a spider hanging by one silk thread over a bonfire. There's just one little glimmer of hope holding you from the judgment. And the point there is not to say that God is spiteful, that God wants us to suffer, but just that there is a place where God is a just God. And if we don't follow him, we are opening ourselves up to consequences. Anyone in here who's a parent knows you don't like having to be the authoritarian. You don't like having to uh, impose punishments or consequences. But we do it not because we want to punish our children, not because we want to see them suffer, but because we're trying to teach them and train them. We're trying to get them to the right place. And there comes a place where it's like, listen, buddy, I've warned you, and I've warned you, and I've warned you, and we've had this conversation over and over and over, and now it's time for me to let you feel the pain a little bit. I've been trying to protect you from this, but now you're going to have to feel the pain. And parents, we have to sometimes set in guardrails that it will make them feel a little pain before they get to the real bad pain, right? We, we need to take that phone away before they really get themselves in trouble. We need to you know, help them learn that if I'm dishonest in little things, then it's going to lead to trouble in my life. And so as parents, that's what we do. But here's the thing. People who are experiencing the justice and the judgment of God, they they didn't get there by accident. They didn't get there uh, because they made a mistake or because they didn't understand. They got there because, number one, they resisted God's love. They resisted His love. They refused His salvation. They ignored His warnings. And they persisted past the point of no return. Well, what is that point of no return? Remember what I said there uh, about about the unforgivable sin? The, The point of no return really for us, is death. Up until that point, we can choose to obey and listen to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit calls us, that's the only point where you can't go back anymore. That's the point of no return. So when we get to that point and we're experiencing God's justice and we're experiencing God's judgment, we have gone past the limits of grace. And the only thing that's left is the justice. The only thing that's left is the judgment. All right, in, um, in modern society, there has been a group uh, called the New Atheists, and they're kind of following, falling out of favor because people are reading through some of their things, but I've been watching some of the debates, and they talk about, you know, well, why don't you believe in God? Why don't you believe in Jesus? Why do you reject Scripture? And, and they just, you know, they fall back on reason over and over and over again. It just doesn't make sense to me. I can't wrap my head around it. How can a perfectly good and loving God allow evil to exist in the world? How can, um, and not just evil that people do, but how, can, how about natural evil like, you know, tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes, things that just cause death and destruction. How can a good and loving God cause those things? And I, I was listening to one of these debates and I, I remember one of the people who was talking to the atheist said this, listen, even if you can't get your head wrapped around it, isn't there something in your heart that says, I want this to be true? I want there to be a, a father that loves me. I want there to be a source to my being uh, that I'm not just the result of molecules smacking together until, you know, chance and, and circumstance brought us together. Isn't there something within you that just, that, that, feels, that, that feels right? 
And, and really, that's where we're at. When Jesus calls us, when the Holy Spirit works on us, He's talking to something within us that's already bent towards God. We're already built as relational beings. God made us so that we could be in a relationship with Him. What did it say God did with Adam and Eve in the garden? He came and He walked with them in the cool of the day. He didn't just sit up on His throne and watch them like ants in an ant farm. He came and He entered into life with them. And then what did Jesus do? When we got ourselves so stuck in sin and and we got ourselves so past the point of, of any hope of salvation, what did God do? He came back into this world to interact with us. He walked with us. He ate with us. He told stories and laughed with us. It says he went to weddings and, and celebrated with us. He came because he wanted to have relationship with us. And so if we reject God, there's no other answer out there. It's Jesus or it's nothing. All right, this is the last warning. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 26. It says, be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. So that's our last warning. Do not ignore the one who is speaking. See, God spoke to Moses and he gave a revelation. These are the things that you need to do to live as as my people, to be holy, to be acceptable in my presence. These are the kinds of people that you need to reject from your community because they're not living up to the standards. And it wasn't to exclude, but there's a discrimination there. Now, we, we hear that word discrimination in our current society and we don't like it. We say, oh, discrimination's a bad thing, but we discriminate all the time, right? We say, oh, you know, Chick-fil-A is way better than, than, than Culver's or whatever. We have opinions. We discriminate in those ways. We, we choose between what's good and what's bad. We, we watch a movie and we say, that was terrible. I'm never watching that again. We watch other ones and we say, that's my favorite movie ever. And we start telling everybody about it. We discriminate in those ways based off of opinion, off of taste. God's asking us to discriminate in our lives as well. Not because he wants to reject people, not because he wants to exclude, but because he's setting standards of behavior that we need to follow. So in this passage, it talks about how the law given to Moses, it had global implications. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, what happened? It said the ground shook. In fact, if you read in that passage in the Old Testament, it says that the people threw themselves on the ground and they were so scared and they said, we don't want to talk to God. Moses, you go talk to him for us because that guy's scary. It had global implications for how they were supposed to live out their life. But now we have a new revelation in Jesus Christ and it doesn't just have global implications, it has cosmic implications. It says, I'm going to shake not only the earth, I'm going to shake the heavens too. This applies to all of creation and it echoes into all eternity. And so the the author of Hebrews is saying, don't ignore this thing. If there's any message you need to make sure you hear, this is one you need to hear. Now, many of us have misconceptions. The Old Testament God was the big meanie, right? He was the one that said, put this person to death and put that one to death and kick this one out of the community and all that. And we get this idea in our head that, that it's all judgment and justice and, and, and meanness in the Old Testament. And that the new God, the New Testament God, the, the one that Jesus tells us about, we like him because he's all puppies and gumdrops and rainbows. 
right? And we get that misconception in our head. But we need to realize that both the Old Testament, the Old Revelation, and the New Revelation have a healthy dose of both mercy and justice. They're both there. There's far more mercy in the Old Testament than we recognize. How do we see that? Well, because God was pretty patient. If you read the story of the Israelites, they messed up again and again and again and again. And still, God said, come on back, make the sacrifices, come worship at the temple, get yourself back right with me, and I will bring you back. I will restore you to the promised land. What was the promised land? The promised land, we go from the, the, the Garden of Eden, that was where God wanted us to be, but we messed up and we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And then they got a promised land, that's where God wanted the Israelites to be, but they messed up and they got kicked out of the promised land. And now here we are, we're experiencing the first fruits of the kingdom of heaven, that's where God wants us to be. We need to be careful that we don't get kicked out of the kingdom of God. And that's not because God wants us on the outside looking in. It's because He loves us and He wants us to experience the blessing. So the reality is there's far more mercy in the Old Testament than we realize, and there is far more justice or judgment in the New Testament than we would like to acknowledge as well. But both are true. So that's why the author of Hebrews says this, don't ignore the one who's speaking. Justin, if you'll come up and help me, we're getting towards the end here. I just want to say this. When it comes to our salvation, there's nothing that has any higher stakes when it comes to whether or not we're going to spend eternity with our Father or without. And there have been disagreements within Christianity for years. You know, even today, you can go and find books that say, oh, hell's not real. It's not really a lake of fire. God doesn't really want to punish people forever. But we have to understand, we don't really know fully what it's going to be. But it uses analogies that try to let us know how bad of a place that's going to be. It's going to be painful, right? Fire hurts, it burns. It's going to be a place of darkness. It's going to be a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't know what hell's going to be like, and I hope I never know. But the point is, is that, you know, there's no higher stakes. Now, the flip side of that is we're not Christians because we're just trying to get out of hell. We didn't say, okay, Jesus, I want to follow you just because we want to get what, what some preachers used to call fire insurance, right? I want to make sure that I don't go to hell. Some of us, maybe, that was where we started, but that's not why you stay a Christian. And then there's the other side. Maybe it's not the stick, it's the carrot that draws us. You know, hey, I, I'm looking forward to my eternal reward. We just did a whole series talking about what's the new heaven and the new earth going to look like. And that is the reward that we had to look forward to. That's our hope as believers. But it's not either the, the carrot or the stick, it's both. And that's the thing we find often uh, it, it, when it comes to our faith. It's both and. And God wants to help us make sure that we set guardrails in our lives, that we assess the risks appropriately. Have you ever noticed that if it, the, the higher the risk, the more careful we are, right? If I wanted to go over on the edge of this uh, pulpit or the edge of the stage, and I'm not moving because of the cameras, but uh, if I went over to the edge of it and I tried to balance and walk along the edge, it'd be no big deal. If I fall, how far am I falling? Just a couple feet probably going to be okay but if i was on the edge of a of a skyscraper in downtown louisville you better believe i'd be a lot more careful i'd say hey isn't there a rope someone can tie around me uh are we sure we need to do this in the first place right the more dangerous it is the more careful we are and there's nothing more dangerous to our soul than ignoring the holy spirit when he calls us 
I started this message off talking about flirting and I'm talking about relationships. And there's stages to a relationship. There's that first stage. There's that crush stage, right? Oh, she looked at me. I got goosebumps all up and down my spine. That's where we start, right? But that's not where we stay. After we get, the, we get past the goosebumps phase and I like her and she likes me and where do you go next? You get committed. You, you start going steady, right? She wears your hoodies. <laughs> and, and you say, okay, I'm not going to talk to any other girls. I found my girl. I found my one, right? And so you reach that place of commitment. You move from crush to commitment. Then you come to the next place. You go from commitment to a covenant. You get married. You make some vows. You do some rituals together and you enter into a, 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 a relationship, a, a, an established spiritual relationship that goes beyond the physical. It is a union between the two of you. And then the last part is the continuation. You know, for a, for a relationship to survive, you got to be committed. you got to say, I'm, I'm here, thick or thin. That's why when we vow, we say for better or worse, for richer or poorer. Even if you start looking ugly, I'm still going to be here. Even if you start acting ugly sometimes, I'm going to call you on it, but I'm still here. It's a commitment to each other. So we go from crush to commitment to covenant, and then we continue. And we have to do the same thing in our faith. And so here's the thing. Some of us in here, we've been flirting with faith for a long time. We've been saying, you know, I kind of like the Jesus thing. I enjoy going to church. Occasionally they give, me, uh, they give me fried chicken or somebody makes a blueberry cobbler. You know, this Friday night we had a Friendsgiving back in the cafe and a bunch of young adults got back there and we, we had us some good food. And I'm telling you, it was, it was a bad thing. I should not have eaten that much food. But I had a blast doing it. It was fun. Some of us like the... The, the accoutrements of Christianity. But it has to be more than that. It has to be a relationship. So if you've been flirting around with this idea of, am I really going to believe in God? Am I really going to trust Him? Am I really going to submit to doing things His way instead of doing things my own way? If you're in this house today and you've been playing around with that, it's time to get off of the toilet, as they like to say, right? It's time to make a decision. Um, and then for others of us, maybe we started good, but we've started that process of drifting. And you know when you're drifting. You know when you're not as into the Word as you should be, and you, you're not praying as much as you should, and you're not worshiping with as much fervor as you used to. And that's just a natural thing. We're, we're emotional beings, but emotions are transitory, right? They go away. They fade. So sometimes we have to stoke ourselves up, and we have to get back into it. I'm telling you, I am a Chicago Bears fan through and through. How do you know? Because I'm still a Bears fan after all these years. But here's the thing. It's a whole lot easier to be a Bears fan when I'm in a stadium full of a bunch of other nuts that are painted blue and orange, and we're out there saying, there's next year. We're going to be good next year, right? And we cheer. It's a whole lot harder, though, when you're sitting at home and you're thinking, Hey, I, I can't do this. And so maybe you've started that process of drifting away. And I, I don't need to go to church today. I, it's okay. I can, I can watch Stephen Furtick or I can tune into our live stream or, you know, I, I can put on a good worship CD. I don't need, I don't really have to go to church. And we start that process of drifting away. Some of us, we started that process. We, we made the covenant. We, we even went as far as getting baptized. You know, we, we, we went through the ritual. We said, I believe, I, I confessed my faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We could go down and we could say, yes, I believe all those things. But then we haven't stayed with it. 
things got in our way and we allowed ourselves to drift. So if that is you today, if you have been flirting with it and you say, I'm done flirting, I'm ready to make this official, I'm ready to go steady with God, all right, I'm going to wear his hoodie. Let's do that today. So if you all will stand to your feet today, what we're going to do is we're going to do a prayer. And as we pray today, we're going to pray for those who are on the fence still. But we're not going to pray for just those. We're going to pray for those of us who maybe our heart isn't where it should be. We've started to drift. And we're not as committed as we once were. And here's the thing. I'm not going to call you down front. I'm not going to say, if you want to commit your life to Christ, I want you to come down front. There's a place for that. That's what baptism is for. That's when you make that public confession. You don't have to do that today. And I don't want that thought to be what keeps you from saying, I'm going to follow Christ. This is about a relationship. And if you want to start a relationship with your Father who loves you, and you want to be in that relationship with Him, all you got to do is say these words with us. And for those of us who maybe we were in a good place at one time, but we started to cool, and we're not as on fire for God as we used to be, we're going to pray that God will ignite that fire within us as well. And then to end this all, we're going to end our service with the ritual. We are going to take the body and the blood together, and we're going to enter into the covenant relationship in that way. So if everybody will bow your heads, let's pray together. If you are a sinner, just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are the Son of God. I pray for you to forgive my sins. I know that your death on the cross paid the penalty and that I can be forgiven in you. I want to be in a relationship with you. I want to do things your way, not mine. And I thank you that you make it possible for me to be forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father God, we want to pray for all those in this room who have begun to drift away. For everybody who is, is not as on fire as they used to be. Lord God, I pray that you would continue to call us and draw us closer. I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to convict us to point out those things where we're not living up to your standards, Lord. And I pray that we wouldn't harden our hearts, but that we would remain soft and vulnerable and, and obedient to your, uh, to your guidance. Father God, I pray that you would ignite a, a passion within us, Lord. Some of us, we just need a little bit of that emotional support, Lord. We need that, that heady feeling, Lord. We need our burden lifted off of our heart once more. Because, Lord, sometimes walking under the weight of this world and the cares of this world, it can be too much for us and it wears us down. So, Lord God, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in our salvation. We rejoice in the deliverance you've given us. We rejoice in the fact that we are no longer under your punishment and your justice, Lord, but that we walk as your sons and your daughters. And we thank you for making it possible to do so. We thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ that you've put into this congregation, Lord, who are there to warn us and to encourage us, Lord, to push us on to pursue you further. Lord, help us to be your people and to live according to your principles and, in, and to walk in your power. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, don't sit down just yet, but ushers, if you could please come forward. They're going to get the elements for communion. And what we're going to do is we're just going to come on down front. Now. If you are in this room today and you don't know what communion is, this is something we do to celebrate Jesus. His body and His blood are the signs and the seal of our covenant relationship with God. And so as Jesus instructs us 
that every time we break the bread together and we drink the cup together, that we're doing it in remembrance of Him. It is an outward thing that we do that represents a spiritual reality. And why are we doing it all together? Why can't I just do it at home? Well, because we are one body and we need to make sure that we are doing it in unity. We all belong to Christ together. And then the other thing you say, well, why do I need to take communion again? I did it last month. Well, because it's a continual thing. It is a continual relationship. I can't say, well, I told you I loved you, God, 10 years ago. Why do I have to tell you again? It's part of it. You continue that. So if you want to begin to come forward, just come on down here and gather these elements from the ushers. And then once everybody has their elements, we're going to take the communion together. Oh, the blood, crimson love, price of life's demand, shameful sin. First Corinthians, Paul instructed the church there how to take communion together the proper way, and this is what he said. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it in pieces. 
And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the body together. says, in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Let's take the cup. Thank you, Jesus. And then Paul ended with this. He said, every time you eat this bread you drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until He comes again. That's the best part. The story isn't over. He's coming back. He's going to get us. And we'll get to be in His kingdom with Him forever. Thank you, Jesus, for the message today. Thank you for your blood that covers all of our sins. Thank you for the warnings that your scripture gives us and help us to live in ways that are pleasing to you. Lord, we want to be your hands and feet, changing this world and pointing everyone to the truth of your gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.